In the Mediterranean world of the first century, dinner invitations were political. And in some cases, they still are. We trade in dinners like a commodity. Can any of you think of someone that you really need to have over? They've had you over to their house, maybe even a couple of times, and it's your turn to return the favor. Which leads me to this. Can anybody think of someone that really ought to have you over? Because <laughs> you've had them over a couple of times, and then you start to wonder, maybe they're just not as into me as I am to them. Have I done something wrong? Do I invite them again? Uh, and all of you are on that list for me, given how generously you've had me over to your homes in the last year. So, dinner invitations were political, and in some cases they still are. And then there's the commodification of children's birthday parties. Uh, from what I've observed and what I've been told, I'm really glad I don't have to deal with this, but it sounds like quite the messy racket. You have to throw your kid a party. You have to invite all the kids that invited your kid to their parties, and you have to throw a decent party. You have to come, keep up with the Joneses' party and maybe even subtly one-up them, but not so drastically that it's publicly shaming. Ah, get me out of that racket. So for those of you who are naturally or maybe even consciously free of these internal calculations that happen, God bless you, and please teach the rest of us. At least teach me. <laughs> Dinner invitations were political in Jesus' world, and sometimes they still are. But in the honor and shame culture that Jesus lived in, the politics of dining were far more pronounced than even in our own. Who you shared meals with, who you accepted an invitation from, and who you invited into your home said an awful lot about you and your status. Folks dined with others in their social class, and if anything, you definitely wanted to dine up. But you didn't want to aim too far above your weight class or you might risk rejection and then a public sort of shaming. And so there was some delicate balance and fancy footwork required for this political act of party throwing and meal feasting. The parable we heard this morning, the parable of the grand dinner party or the parable of the lame excuses, comes in the middle of Luke's gospel, in the midst of a substantial section where Jesus is dialoguing with the Pharisees. And we're told at the start of chapter 14 that the Pharisees are watching him closely. And Jesus is making his way to the home of a leader of the Pharisees for a Sabbath meal. Along the way, he heals a sick person, and while doing so, he explicitly challenges the authorities about the legalities of Sabbath healing. And then when he arrives for the Sabbath meal at the home of the leader of the Pharisees, Jesus notices and then calls out the guests who are jockeying to nab the best seats at the table. And at first blush, it just seems like a simple lesson in manners. You should aim lower than your actual status so that your host can honor you by sort of helping you up the totem pole of seats. But the rather benign lesson in manners takes a turn for the personal when Jesus very directly and explicitly confronts his host and calls him out on the unacceptability of having only invited those of similar status. The better and the right approach, Jesus admonishes, is to invite the poor 
the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Well, 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 this is not how you start a good party. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't just stop there with his very personal admonishment. He goes on to tell the parable then that we heard this morning. Thank you, Donald, for a beautiful reading of the parable. The parable of the great dinner and the lame excuses. A wealthy master prepares a grand dinner and sends his slave out to remind all the invited guests who would have been the similar social status, peers, maybe like dining a little bit up, tells them that it's time to come, time to show up. And each guest declines the invitation, each responding with their uniquely lame excuse. Upon hearing the report, the angered master sends the slave out again, and this time to bring in a few social rejects. The same poor, crippled, blind, and lame that Jesus had just mentioned to his actual host. So now here he's repeating the admonishment in his parable. Now these folks do come in in the parable, but there's still room at the grand dinner table. So the wealthy master sends the slave out once again, this time to the narrow lanes of the town. So now we're getting even to the further reaches, more and more marginalized to those who are hidden and perhaps even hiding from view with a completely random invitation to any and all. The slave compels those at the further reaches to come in so that the master's house may be filled. And then for the bitter finale, the wealthy master proclaims, for I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Dinner invitations were political. And these stories and this parable from Jesus about God's table and who is welcome at God's table set the stage for the next portion of Luke's gospel, which is all about the cost of discipleship. So this whole section with the Pharisees is preparing for the next section of Luke's gospel, which is all about the cost of discipleship. So clearly Luke here in this middle section is linking radical hospitality all these teachings about God's table and who's welcome, with radical discipleship. Now, radical, of course, doesn't just mean awesome in the hippie 60s sense, like radical dude. (laughs) That's not what we mean by radical hospitality and radical discipleship. It means rooted. And so first I wondered if hospitality and discipleship were perhaps each rooted in the other, in sort of a chicken and egg phenomenon, that radical hospitality is rooted in radical discipleship and vice versa, discipleship rooted in hospitality. And that may be partly true, but then I began to wonder if they share a root. Perhaps they're both radical in the same way. And if so, what is that root? What is the rootedness of radical discipleship and radical hospitality that Luke is linking together here? in his gospel. Well, you may recall from last week's sermon that I reported listening to an Iconocast episode in which Mark Van Steenwick, who is co-founder of the Mennonite Worker Community in Minneapolis, was the interviewer. And because I'm prone to sort of uh, bunny trail web surfing, especially when I'm writing a sermon and looking for any kind of distraction available, um, I soon found myself on the website for the Mennonite Worker Community. And there I read this. Hospitality, welcoming the stranger, 
is not only a relational posture, but also an economic practice. Hospitality is not just a relational posture, but an economic practice. For the Mennonite worker, hospitality leads to jubilee, which they define as a redistribution and gift economy. So hospitality leads to jubilee, and any act of hospitality that doesn't hold the potential for jubilee isn't hospitality. Likewise, any practice of jubilee that is closed to outsiders rejects Jesus' call to love neighbor and enemy. Okay, so perhaps discipleship and hospitality are both rooted in jubilee. Well, this is very convenient for a biblical jubilee preaching series. And frankly, given what we know of Luke's gospel, where he starts with Jesus' proclamation in Nazareth about jubilee having come true in their hearing, this is quite possibly what Luke is getting at in this middle section of his gospel, that hospitality, the welcoming of others all, and discipleship following Jesus are inextricably linked. Uh, Sort of like love and marriage, love and marriage. You can't have one without the other. Hospitality and discipleship, inextricably linked to one another and both rooted in this jubilee practice. Economic sharing with outsiders and marginalizing marginalized folks. Mirroring God's welcome of strangers. God's welcome of those on the outskirts, in the narrow lanes, at the margins of society, widows, orphans, outcasts, brokenhearted, the least, the lost, the last. So here's Jesus in Luke, both proclaiming and practicing jubilee, and it begs the question, when I read this parable, what are uh, my uniquely lame excuses <laughs> for not coming to the grand feast that God has set before me. And then given the season of Jubilee that we are all in together, what are our lame excuses? Our congregation's lame excuses for not fully receiving the gift of Jubilee. These are challenging questions to face into, and they so quickly go to a guilt place and a blaming place and a should place where Jubilee becomes this huge burden. So I pause then when I notice this, when I notice the guilt and shame kind of starting to creep up. Um, Pause again to open my heart, because Jubilee that is rooted in the Exodus story as we explored last Sunday is ultimately about liberation. This is about liberation and freedom for all of us, not just for the marginalized, but for all of us. This is liberation and good news for all. And there are things that I and we need to be freed of so that we can step fully into that liberation and jubilee. And that is the desire of my heart. And I think it is our shared longing. We want to step into that. And there are things that we need to be freed of in order to be able to do that. So, I gaze at this question, what are my excuses, distractions, and blocks? I gaze at this question with compassion for myself, as much as I can muster. And it makes me think of a roomy quote that um, a girlfriend of mine had printed and framed and gave to me. It sits on my desk at home. It goes like this. 
Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Task is not to seek for love, but to find the barriers within that you've built against it. And so I think it is with Jubilee. Our task is not so much to seek for Jubilee, to make it happen somehow of our own power and will and volition, but merely, and here it's like, (laughs) merely, as though it's a small thing, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within that I and we have built against it. What are those barriers? And then it shall be ours then the gift will be available for the receiving and the feast and the grand dinner will be shared with all. You probably know a few of your own barriers to Jubilee. I certainly know a few of mine. And I think we probably know a few of ours. And some of them, I think, are deeply unconscious um, and harder to access. Um, Some of you know that I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage route across um, northern Spain. And so I'm a member of American Pilgrims on the Camino. And there's a monthly newsletter that comes out called La Conca, which is the shell. Um, And just, excuse me. Ooh, a little something in my throat. (coughs) I think I'll be able to talk. Um, Just this week, a new issue came out <clears throat> Sorry, I'm not sure what that is. A new issue came out. <clears throat> oh, look at this. Read it. <clears throat> you don't even have to ask and you shall receive. Um, a lot of pilgrims in preparation for the pilgrimage of the Camino or any pilgrimage Um, spend a lot of time on the packing list. And many of us are very proud of our packing list. We are very proud of um, how we honed things down. So the things that we took that were very smart um, and very efficient, and most importantly, the things we didn't take. And and I am not an exception on this. I am very proud of my packing list. I can tell you about it someday if if you're interested. I won't today. But a pilgrim wrote in um, this month's digital issue of Lakanka a different sort of packing list. And one section was called Pack It, and a second section was called Ditch That Stuff. So um, here's that Ditch That Stuff list as food for thought. Heavy hiking boots, they can weigh you down. Blame. Death grip on your mobile device. Death grip on your opinions. Tired old stories that make you feel small. Expectations. Rigidity. Ooh, you gotta let go of that one on the Camino. (laughs) Negative self-talk. Apathy. Unfounded fear. Now I, could, I know that I could ditch some of that stuff for this season of Jubilee discernment. And however much I like to remind myself to hold all of this compassionately, to have compassion for the ways in which I do keep that death grip on lots of things that I really should rather ditch. 
however much I remind myself to hold that compassionately, it's still so easy to slip into the guilt and the shame and the shooting all over myself, as Amy introduced me to that phrase, which I like. Stop shooting all over yourself. Jubilee can start to feel like a huge burden. And so I want to dwell for one moment on um, one piece of this morning's parable. It's the final excursion for the slave. And he's instructed to compel folks to come. And it sounds a bit forceful to me, and in some English translations it is. It's make them come. But I wonder if there's something to the compelling nature of the Feast of Jubilee. The image that comes to mind for me is that of snowshoeing through the mountains or cross-country skiing, as I've learned lots of you prefer to snowshoeing, or maybe even downhill skiing, if there's a few of you out there that do that. After a long and cold adventure outside in the fading light of dusk, and you look ahead and see a cabin illuminated from the inside with firelight. That's the image that comes to me. Even before reaching the door, you can almost hear the crackle of the sparks, smell the aroma of burning wood, taste the steaming mug of tea that surely awaits, and feel the warmth radiating out from the mesmerizing fireplace. That's Jubilee. And that's the vision that might compel us forward. Might we be compelled by the Holy Spirit, into the joy of Jubilee. Might we come to the grand dinner because we are hungry, because we're hungry for food that is qualitatively different than the food that the world offers, because we want a different sort of dinner politics, not a politics that tracks who's had who and who is socially equivalent to whom but a a politics that scandalizes those who would like to keep some decorum. Thank you very much. After all, it's not a party until the guests arrive. I recall the SNC dance that I threw last winter. Anybody remember that? I recall the anticipation as the hour of the start time approached. Would anyone come? (laughs) And who? Who might come? For any party and for any feast, for any grand dinner, guests are needed just as much as hosts. There is an inherent mutuality with host and guest. And this week, as we met with the pastors, Jonathan was describing GLA, um, our day drop-in center for folks who are living on the streets in this community. He was describing GLA in this way, that there's a posture of hospitality, a posture of spaciousness in a jubilee community in which one ultimately experiences mutuality, not precise reciprocity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, dinner for dinner, kid birthday party for kid birthday party, the politics of dinner invitations of which we are accustomed, not the trading in the commodity of dinners. No, it's not precise reciprocity but mutuality. What each gives and receives is uniquely different, but every last one from the halls of power to the narrow ways, the narrow lanes, the margins. Everyone has the shared experience of giving something that we have to give and receiving, God willing, 
something we need. So today we're going to come to the table of Jesus to receive a taste of the feast. A taste of the grand dinner to which all are invited. A taste of the joy of Jubilee that lures us in like a fire-lit and fire-warmed cabin out of a snowstorm. Come hungry to this feast and be filled.